Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 205 for July 16th, 2009. Lempel Ziv. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Picture yourself on a phone call sharing and explaining something visual with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks so much for your contribution. We couldn't do Twit without it. Get ready, it's time for Security Now, the show that covers your privacy, your security, protects you online. Our protector, of course, the great Steve Gibson of the Gibson Research Corp, GRC.com, the inventor of SpinRight, the discoverer of spyware, and a lover of a great Cabernet, what is it, Cabernets? Cabernet, <laughs> red wine, good I, for you, too. <laughs> it is good for you. Yep. Do you like dark chocolate small. as well? Uh, huh? Do you like dark chocolate as well? Dark chocolate is very good for you, too. I know. See, if I could live on red wine and dark chocolate, I think. Uh... <laughs> hey, Steve, good to, good to see you again. Great to be back with you, Leo. You are, as our listeners are hearing this, you're floating somewhere out in Asia. Let me see. I could check the date. You know, I, I am the opposite of a private person, as you probably have gathered. And uh, I have posted my entire itinerary, including... Everything you'd want to know, except maybe the phone number to call. <laughs> so this is Online. airing on. This is airing on July sixteenth. July sixteenth, two o five. Oh, that'll be that'll be a sad day. I'll only have a, a day left on my cruise. Ah, we will be uh, on in the uh, in the China Sea, sailing back to China for our departure. So, when you're listening to this, think of me crying <laughs> over the uh, railing. Well, we are recording this because I refuse to miss any weeks. I don't want to leave our listeners stranded. We're recording this several weeks in advance. So we don't have any security news. However, we're going to we're not going to miss any news. Um, The episode after this one, when you're back, will be the mega security news update where we'll be catching up on three weeks of everything that went on. And I have a feeling there'll be enough that will have happened that we can do a whole episode just on everything that happened while you were out traveling. Let's look on the on the bright side. Maybe I'll come back and nothing will have happened. <laughs> there'll be no security. Yeah, we laugh. Yeah, Not okay. possible. Not possible. No. <laughs> Not these days. Not these days. So what are we going to do today? We're going to uh, do a, the second of our two episodes Interestingly enough, named after people because it's about sort of a a fundamental concept or technology or basically computer science breakthrough that uh, that is is named after the people who invented it. Uh, In this case, the initials are L and Z for Lempel and Ziv, who were two researchers I think they were at IBM at the time. I remember reading their original patent, and I think it was assigned to IBM, although I didn't dig back uh, prior to the show and, and verify that because the history is 
tangled with patents and other people doing modifications to their concept. But basically, this is the way data compression is done. It was done in a whole bunch of other ways that were less good until 1977 when Lempel and Ziv uh, told the world how to do this. Now, I know a little bit about this because uh, when I was a younger fellow and still could program my way out of a paper bag, hmm. I wrote a program called Mac Arc. Remember before uh, Zip, there was Arc? Yes. And um, there was no Arc for the Mac. This is like 84, 85 when the Mac had just come out. And we I had a BBS and we wanted to be able to compress files for the Mac. And there was no real easy way to do this. So I took the source code for Arc on the PC, which was, uh, I guess, open. So we didn't know about open source at the time, but the source code was available, including the Lempel Ziv algorithms. I think it was table-based, as I remember, and uh, ported it over to the Macintosh. Um, I never got to the compression part, just the decompression, but that even that was better than nothing. So I remember doing this, writing this algorithm out. It's clever. Well, it's way cool. And so I'm going to, we're going to take our listeners through a little bit of sort of starting at how you might think about compression and, and it's essentially we'll go through various stages of different types of compression up until these guys said, okay, here's how it's done. And boy, were they right. <laughs> um, since we don't have any security news or errata, I have nothing but a, sort of a fun um, spinwright story to share. This was actually a posting in the GRC news groups that I ran across. And it's like, oh, there's so many talk about spinwright. <laughs> um, Jacob Jansen is uh, the person who wrote this. And he said, spinwright has saved my bacon, as he put it, three times now, and also saved my mother's business from losing all her data and saved us $1,500 in recovery costs. He says, of course, I have purchased a license, which is kind of a funny story you might enjoy. So four years ago, I was playing around with partition magic, and it screwed up halfway through a partition adjustment. I was floored. All of my source code, so I guess this guy's a programmer, all of my source code was on the machine, and I hadn't backed up in a week which is a ton of code to lose. So I ran to my brother's house and consulted him. We determined that we needed an adapter to plug the laptop drive into his PC so we could talk to it. And his first suggestion was buy Spinrite, which I did on the spot. The funny thing is, when we mounted the drive, we decided to boot into Windows first <laughs> to see if we could see any data and copy it right away. And... Bloody Windows fixed the broken partitioning. I then ran Spinrite anyway as a precaution and have been using it routinely ever since. And as mentioned above, it has saved me personally three times. He has in parentheses those darn laptop drives. He says, <laughs> and sa saved my mother's business too. She now has Jungle Disk backing up all her data nightly. Oh, and a friend of mine in the Canadian Armed Forces used Spinrite to save a hard disk drive in the field, albeit on training, no life-saving events, <laughs> although they did man manage to save face by having access to the navigation. So Spinrite has earned me a case of beer. He said, my buddy Aww. balked at buying it 
but after it saved his bacon, he Hmm. bought me a case of beer in thanks. $1,500 in savings for my mom and relief from endless suffering via restored hard disk drives. Well, I hope that uh, not only did he buy a case of beer, he bought a copy of Spinray. Oh, I think he did that first. Yeah, he said his buddy balked at having to buy one. Right. But uh, when it worked for him and saved him, then he was glad. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Spinrite is, is a must-have. If you have disk drives, you kind of have to have Spinrite. We use it all the time around here, and it's very handy. It's fun to have Colleen as a believer. Having, yeah. You know, she saw it firsthand. We so. won her over. We really did. That was very cool. All right. We get to Mr. Lempel and Mr. Zeeve in just a little bit, the creators of the uh, most amazing compression algorithm ever. There have been successors, right? Are they all based on the same notion? They're all based on this concept. I mean, this is very much like we talked about two weeks ago with Boyer and Moore, where once this like this revelation, in that case, it was searching from the end of the pattern forward. Once you get that, it's like, oh, I'm never going to do it any other way. Well, similarly, Lempel and Ziv have a key concept, which, as you said, many people have extended in different ways because theirs is so fundamental that there's all kinds of things, different things you can do with it, different ways, like twists on, you know, variations on the theme. But the theme has survived. And basically, well, not even basically, all compression today is done with Lempel and Ziv at, at its core. Isn't and that neat? we're going to explain what that is. Yay! But before we do, I want to explain something about GoToMeeting from our friends at Citrix. GoToMeeting is a fantastic program that lets you eliminate all that business travel, turns your boring old conference calls into something valuable, in some ways better than a face-to-face meeting. The problem with teleconferences and phone calls, business meetings over the phone, they're very convenient, obviously, you know, and they, they, they save time. You get right to the point. You get the call over with you, move on. And I do most of my meetings now that way. I can't, I'm stuck to the ball. I can't go anywhere. Not literally stuck to the ball, but I... Can't, I can't leave the studio. So we frequently have business meetings over the phone. The problem, and I'm sure you've experienced this, is they're just not visual. you know. And if you're trying to, you know, when uh, Mark McCrary of Podtrack is trying to show me a presentation or show me the spreadsheets or show me the numbers of, you know, the advertising numbers, or when uh, our friends from Telos are trying to show me the layout of the new uh, audio system, what do they use? They use GoToMeeting. In fact, you should be using GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is fantastic. It's what we use. We even use it on Maxwell's house and some of our other shows uh, as a way of uh, showing screens. Um, GoToMeeting lets people see what you're talking about. You could schedule your meeting ahead of time or even while you're on the phone. It's just that easy. A couple of clicks of the mouse. Everybody goes to GoToMeeting.com. They join the meeting. You give them a meeting ID or they click a link. Now they're seeing your computer desktop on their computer screen. So they could follow along with you as you move among pages or show them applications or click on spreadsheets. You can share control, too. So you could say, well, show me what you're talking about. And I can, you know, draw something or vice versa. It's really a remarkable way to take any phone call and make it useful, engaging. That's important. You know, sometimes these phone calls, people are snoring. They're drifting off. They're playing, you know, they're playing uh, a Tetris or they're Twittering. Uh, this is the way to keep them involved. Sarah's presentations for product demos, for training, for collaboration. Try it free for 30 days right now. Go to meeting.com slash security now. I was thinking, Steve, that uh, when we did that uh, Boyer Moore thing, it would have been so great. We should really start doing this to have pictures because it was a very visual thing. Of course, it's an audio podcast, but for people who are watching at home, the ability to see it 
we found with Maxwell's house, you know, he, one slide can explain so much. Yeah. We're visual. Go to meeting.com slash security now. Try it now. Absolutely free. We thank Citrix and the folks at GoToMeeting and Citrix are just so great for supporting not just this show, but all of our shows. They are one of our uh, prime. We have two or three prime sponsors who have been with us for a long time and who just really believe in Twit. And uh, boy, I'm, I'm so grateful for them because we couldn't do it without them. All right. Now let's talk about Mr. Lempel and Mr. Ziv. Well, we'll wind back first and talk about the things, the approaches that led up to it. First of all, all of this is data compression. Um, and I, th- this occurred to me not only because it's another sort of fundamental core piece of computer science, but of course, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about secure zip, um, you know, zip and arc and, and, you know, the things that the PKWare does and basically Compression everywhere. When you right-click in Windows and say you want to compress a file, um, back in the DOS days, there was, remember the company Stacker? Oh, yeah, that, Stacker. Yeah, St- Stacker was doing partition compression, and they had LZS was was their technique. So, you know, obviously data compression is has, has been around for a long time and has been interesting to people and you know well i mean you know the audio that we're doing now we're doing when we compress with with mp3 we're not doing what's called lossless compression similarly when you compress an image with jpeg um both mp3 audio compression and and jpeg image compression are lossy compression meaning that that when you decompress it you do not get back exactly what you put in. You get back something that's good enough. The picture looks good enough, not too blurry. The audio sounds, you know, to your ear, indistinguishably different from what went in, yet it was, you know, much smaller while it was compressed. So there's two classes of compression, lossy compression and lossless compression, with lossless compression, you get back precisely what you put in. And that's the type of compression we're, we're talking about. That's what LZ compression does and many other types of compression that led up to it. It, it makes, it makes so, sense. It makes sense because uh, an analog uh, thing like sound or a picture or video you can degrade them a little bit, but you can't degrade binary code. You can't take your word processing document and take out the E's. It's just, it's not going to work. Right. So there's well, some things you have to compress losslessly. Yes. And we've also talked about in, in the context of security, we've talked about, about the need to compress something before you encrypt it. Because as we know, good encryption turns regular plain text into pseudo-random noise. Right, which is well, not very well compressed. Well, well actually, pseudo-random noise, one of, the, it, one of the really interesting tests for the quality of pseudo-random data, that is to say, how random is it, is how compressible it is. Because truly random data won't compress at all. You can't compress it. You can't find anything meaningfully redundant in the data. And that's the key. In every case, the 
lossless compression, where we're talking about getting back exactly what you originally um, got, what you originally gave the compressor, it involves redundancy. It involves something that is that is that is repeating. And so, for example, the 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 simplest, most sort of obvious compression is known as it's very simple. Is known as run length compression. Compression. So um, that was, for example, what faxes used in the early days. If if you were feeding a fax in and there was a line, the, a line of black that went all the way across the page, instead of sending individual bytes of black code, for example, the sender would say, "Wait a minute!" It would it would sort of it would store up what was coming so that it could it could look ahead. In, in its buffer before it sent it out. And it would see a whole scan line across the fax of black pixels. And so instead, it would, it would have a code that said, I'm going to send you a count instead of the actual data. And then it would send a count, and then, then the data that's to be repeated that many times. Well, so that's just like three symbols, a, a, an escape character account and then what it is you want to send instead of you know who knows how many hundred individual pixels across the page so and then the same is true with white space faxes for example have lots of white space so the 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 scanner in the fax would scan ahead be, be able to look sort of into the future to see how much you know how many scan lines how many individual pixels of white are, are, it's going to encounter before the first pixel of black, and it would just it would compress that by saying, "Okay, here comes three thousand white pixels." So there you go. So it would send that across the line. At the other end, the receiver would would, would be receiving this and see the escape character, meaning, "Oh, instead of actual data, I'm about to get a count and then the data." And it would say, "Oh, here comes three thousand whites." Well, it would expand that as a fax is coming out of the receiving end back into a whole bunch of white space before the next line of text starts. So run length compression is is very effective in some contexts, except it requires, obviously, lots of the same thing in a single run. And if you don't have that, for example, if you just had the word the, space, the, space, the, space, the, space. Well, you've got T-H-E space, T-H-E space, T-H-E. So no character is repeated, yet it's obvious to us looking at it that there's a lot of redundancy there. So so the next approach that was taken, sort of in sort of fundamental compression technology, was developed by an MIT student back in 1952 um, a guy named David Huffman. Um, what he recognized was that different, um, the, the one way to represent data in a smaller space was to represent those things that occur most often with a shorter code and the things that occur less often with a longer code. Well, my favorite example of this actually way predates David's work. What what he did, what Huffman did, was come up with a 
mathematically precise, scientific way of taking any alphabet with known frequency characteristics and developing an optimum encoding for it. But somebody back in the 1840s had a similar problem. His name was Samuel Morse. Oh, Mr. Dit, 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 dot, 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 dash, dash, dash. <laughs> exactly. The Morse code was designed. So, so, so Samuel Morse comes up with this way of having, you know, a telegraph key and a wire heading out west somewhere uh, and, and a little clanker at the other end, a, a, an electromagnet with an armature. That would go, and all he could do was press the key and go, you know, clankety, clank, clank at the other end. So, so he says, okay. I've got that now. How do I send English through this thing? And what he realized was he needs to encode he needs to encode English in an efficient way. So so he's a, he decides okay, I can send short ev- events and long events which are called dots and dashes. And so I'm going to have to do groups of those to represent characters and he's not going to have highly trained people at each end so it's got to be you know you know you know basically um a system where someone can look at a page it's called the telegram i guess back then and 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 by just sight reading it turn this into some impulses which go over the wire that somebody at the other end can be transcribing very much like elaine does um, what comes out the other end. So he said, okay, well, I'd like the, the, the characters in English that occur the most often, they should be the shortest. So not surprisingly, E is a dot. And T, which actually occurs more often in English than most people would think, is a dash. Just, you know, E is one dot, T is one dash. A, that occurs often, but not as often as E, it's dot dash. Do you know how he figured out the uh, frequencies of uh, English letters? Kind of an nope. interesting footnote to this. Good. How? Well, if you think about it, in those days, newspapers were typeset, and they made individual characters, cold type characters, for each letter in the newspaper. <laughs> nice. So they analyzed the bins. He actually got Does it a little how, bit wrong. How many E's you had to have in order to typeset the typical page. Exactly. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. So N... For, you know, A is dot dash, N is dash dot, I is dot dot, M is dash dash. And to give you an example, the other end of the spectrum, Q is dash dash dot dash. So, you know, a long pattern for the things that don't occur very often and a shorter pattern for the things that do occur the most often. So, so... What Huffman came up with was a way that you could you could take the uh, a, a block of text and count the number of of each of the different characters and and build an efficient like the most efficient the provably most efficient encoding such that those characters that occur the most often will have the shortest representation. And here we're talking bits. So like, you know, E might be one zero and T might be um, one zero or, or, or might, might be one one. 
and then the next longest one might be zero one zero and so forth. So the idea being that you you break this this byte orientation. Notice that 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 normal ASCII, for example, where we use an alphabet of of just typically alphabetic characters and numbers, we're storing that in a byte because it's convenient to do with a computer that that moves things around in 8-bit lumps, which we've been using for, you know, decades now. But that's inherently inefficient because a byte gives us, as we know, 256 possible combinations. Yet if we just have a, a, a text document, we're only using typically... The alphabet is 26 times 2 for upper and lower case, plus, plus numbers and symbols, many, many fewer than 256. So bytes, you know, 8-bit characters are an inefficient way of representing text. What, what simple Huffman coding does when it's applied is to, to essentially re-encode this fixed length 8 bits per character in a variable length token, much as Morse code uses variable length dots and dash strings in order to represent a message, taking advantage of the fact that the shorter ones represent symbols that, are, that occur the most often. So, so Huffman coding um, was another step forward. And then... Time went by. People were using computers, and and compression. The need to compress things efficiently was continually, you know, continued to be important. Um, certainly, as it is for us today, you know, we're all using zip and gzip and 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 um, gif images and png images, all which are lossless compression based. So the next innovation was the move towards dictionaries. The idea was that if you, if you had a dictionary and each end had this dictionary, instead of sending the individual symbols through or storing the individual symbols, you could instead store pointers into the dictionary. So if you had, a, for example, a dictionary of English and, and it, was, it, it made sense based on what it was that you were trying to compress, you could, instead of sending the individual symbols, you could just send the location in the dictionary of the word that you wanted. So now a pointer represents a whole word instead of all the individual characters being sent. And if you think about it, I mean, even though there's lots of words, um, as soon as you have four characters, well, if the characters started off being 8-bit bytes, you've got four of those. So that's 32 bits that you've consumed using four byte-sized characters. Well, we know that 32 bits gives us 4 billion possible combinations which means that with those same four characters, those four bytes, you could point to any of four billion words. That's a lot of words. And you could also, of course, always 
have like some extra code that's that's reserved saying, okay, this isn't in the dictionary, so we're going to give this to you character at a time for those exceptions. And so, you know, that was a, a, a nice approach. That, that, that was an effective approach for, for some classes of, of use. The problem is that, that you would have to have dictionaries that matched. You'd have to, you know, the, the, the decompressor or the person at the receiving end would have to have a dictionary. Otherwise, all they've got is gibberish. So, so the, they're, they're developed this notion of a dynamic dictionary where you would, you would scan through the, the content that you wanted to compress or that you wanted to send, and on the fly, you would build a dictionary. That's sort of what Huffman was doing with his symbols. There, he's encoding, he's looking at the frequency distribution of symbols and encoding each symbol in the, in the minimum space possible. In dictionary compression, you're, you're taking larger chunks, larger pieces of, of source, and like words, for example, using spaces as, as the delimiting boundaries, and you're saying, okay, the word the occurs this many times. You know, the word apostrophe happened once. Um, and so you you pre you pre process that that the, the 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 content that you want to compress or send look at the whole thing perform an analysis and create a dictionary just for that single use just for you know that is the, the dictionary would be optimal for this particular content that you want to send the problem is that while that's a nice approach, it means that you have to, in order to, for, for the receiver to understand what you send, that is the pointers into this custom dictionary, you've got to send the dictionary. So, so, you, so to, to, to transmit this message, you send the dictionary, then all the pointers. Or if you were compressing something statically, you, the whole front the whole like the header of of what you were compressing would just be the dictionary, and then what would follow would be pointers back into the dictionary. So that was you know another step forward. The brilliance of what Lempel and Ziv came up with in 1977 uh, won them a patent, and I mean it's as we said before, this is an approach which which has been used ever since in variations. So here's what they realized. They came up with a way of, of either statically compressing or um, they actually described it in terms of a transmission channel. Uh, and, and, you know, I've used that example a couple times here with Morris and the Telegraph or with um, a, a fax machine where you've got a sender and a receiver and some transmission channel, and you're wanting to minimize the bandwidth you need, minimize the number of characters you send, which is to say you want to compress what you're sending through the channel so that it can be decompressed at the other end to reconstitute the, ori the original text. Now, really, compressing a file is the same way, where the channel is just your hard drive. So you compress it 
to this static file, which at some point later you're going to decompress. So, so the idea of, of compressing a file statically and sending it through a channel, they're, they're, they're equivalent for our purposes. So what Lempel and Ziv realized was there was, there was a way that they could sort of use the, this concept of a dynamic dictionary and of, at the same time avoid having to ever send it, which is uh, like, what? You know, how, how can you possibly avoid sending a dynamic dictionary if that's what you're going to use? Well, they came up with a way of incrementally constructing the dictionary on the fly. And the idea is that both the sender and the receiver start with a, an empty dictionary. We can, we can think of it as a buffer or, or a dictionary, which is empty. So the sender looks to see whether the character they want to send is in the dictionary. Well, since it's empty, it's not. So they send the character. Then... And and the receiver. Oh, I get what's going on. Uh huh. They're gonna build it. They build it. So they they put the character that's not there in the dictionary, and they send it. The receiver um, sees that they've received a character, so they put it in the dictionary. Then the, so then then you come to the next character. Is this in the dictionary? If not, stick it in the dictionary and send it. And the receiver receives the character, puts it in the dictionary. So what you're going to do is you you end up essentially building a linear buffer of everything you've sent before until at some point, say that like you've sent the word the in the past, in the recent past, and you 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 have the ability also to look ahead. So you get a T and you're able to look because you 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 know what it is you're sending. You, you see a T followed by an H and an E and a space. And, it, you, and, and looking in the dictionary, you realize, hey, we sent that before. We've already sent T-H-E space. And so you match as much of what you're about to be sending as what you've already sent to find the longest string that exists in the dictionary. And instead you send a pointer to it. So you come up with a, a, a compact way of saying, here in the dictionary, for this many characters, is what I mean. And that you send Clever. instead of the T-H-E space. Clever. The receiver has, be, because they've been essentially building a synchronized dictionary, and that's what's so cool, is that, is that by... Uh, by playing by the same rules through the, at the other end of this channel, whether it's a real-time communications channel, and by the way, like the V.42 um, modem spec used Lempel-Ziv compression. That was how we had compression in, in, those, in the modems we were using before we finally stopped using modems. So, of course, people still do today. And so you've got it. You literally are doing this on the fly. And so whether you do it in real time in a communications channel or storing a file, when you use PKZip, when you use Zip or, 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 
or any or deflate in in Unix. Deflate is the same thing. It, it is this Lempelziv technology where you the the receiver then receives this little token which says, "Look here in your buffer for these many characters and expand that." And so that's the way this works. The beauty of this also is that the buffer is of, of a fixed length. So at some point, you start losing the stuff that's really old. And it's interesting how well this works, because if you think about writing like a long document in English, you're, you, the subject of what you're writing about sort of, you're, you're, there's like a locality. You're, you're, you have a couple paragraphs talking about this, then you start talking about that, and you're talking about something else. And so there's local context, which is, which is sort of relevant to the recency of, of, of the text that's just come before. So this Lempel-Ziv approach of having sort of, a, this, sort of a sliding buffer of the past, the older stuff that may, may no longer, that, that like there's less chance of, of redundancy it sort of leaves the end of the buffer and new stuff is coming in on the front that you've more recently sent. So the chances of, of talking about what you're talking about redundantly is much higher than talking about something that you, know, you were referring to a few pages ago. So the fact that that sort of left the, left the history buffer, sort of it, it dynamically adjusts in a really elegant way. And so... No, that's the fundamental concept, which is just it's just beautiful because yeah. the the sender and the receiver or the compressor and the decompressor, they 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 build they sort of dynamically build these this dynamic dictionary. And at the more redundancy you have, the 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 greater chance of finding a match that's in the dictionary. So you can just send pointers to the other guy's dictionary, which you know is the same as yours, because they've been building it as you have. It's just beautiful. Yeah, very slick, very elegant. And then all these variations, you know, they published a paper in 77, their, their first uh, approach, they called it a universal algorithm for sequential data compression. And a year later, and that, that, that was called LZ77, uh, which is the, the date of their paper. Then LZ78, a year later, they did another paper called Compression of Individual Sequences via Variable Rate Coding. And so they began to get fancier with the way you encode these positions and lengths in the dictionary. And essentially, everybody who's come afterwards has come up with various twists on that. You know, this LZW st stood for Lempel Ziv Welch, a guy named Terry Welch in 84. So what, uh, six years later, um, uh, produced a paper, a technique for high performance data compression, where he referred to the Lempel Ziv approach. But he said, I've come up with a different way. I'm going to I'm going to th the 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 Lempel Ziv approach you still needed to send characters across the line because you started with empty dictionaries. So uh, Welch said, wait a minute, let's, let's preload the dictionaries with the whole set of symbols. 
So we'll never have to send a character. We can always only send pointers because we know if we if we put the whole character set in the dic- in each dictionary, the the sender and the receiver to start with, then the we we know that all the characters we could ever encounter will be there somewhere. And so so it's that kind of variations on what Lempel and Ziv did that that people have come up with. But fundamentally, the concept was something that would dynamically adapt where where the sender and receiver or the compressor and decompressor were able to follow rules such that the symbols that they the pointers that they were sending to refer to entries in the dictionary would always be synchronized even though the dictionary was being built on the fly neato and of course it's also been a patent mess um, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. So did Unisys own the patent? Did they work for Unisys? Um, I think they were with Sperry at some point. Sperry and, Univac, which became Unisys. Exactly. Yeah. And and so so they licensed this to Sperry that became Unisys. And without really knowing um, any better, CompuServe, remember the old right. bullet, you know, the big commercial bulletin board system, um, CompuServe. Are they gone? I guess they are. Oh H- yeah, H and think... R Block owned them. Right, right. I guess they're gone. Which was strange. It was like, okay. Well, well... you know what it was? It was a timeshare that yes. had extra time, and so they said, well, let's let <laughs> let's try letting other people use it, pay to use it. And I think, in fact, I think they were running on CDC systems. Oh wow! Be- because the right. the the user ID that that CompuServe gave people seven five like... one zero six comma three one three five. <laughs> exactly. I happen to remember that. I <laughs> I think th- th- those I think those were CDC username. Oh, that explains um, it. Oh, like logon. How approach. ridiculous was that? And that's what was like surfaced as your your right. user ID. Well, they they did the the GIF image format or GIF depending upon who you talk to, you know, GIF, the which was a lossless image compression. And they based it on Terry Welch's LZW compression, not knowing that it was patent encumbered. And this all got very popular. Years went by. And then after the fact, you know, historically, Unisys said, uh, you know, we it just occurred to us we have a patent on everyone's GIF images that I mean on like on the technology to compress and decompress. And the way patents work is, you know, even if you didn't write the software, if you've got the ability to display a GIF image, you've got the algorithm in your machine. And when you every time you display a GIF image, you're violating the patent unless, mm-hmm. you know, unless you have a license to do that. And so there was they, a uh, complete you, freak out on the Internet over this. Oh, people. Oh, I mean, it, yeah. there was this righteous indignation and yeah. people were they were talking about burning all GIFs and, and I mean, really, you know, upset that Unisys was was choosing to assert their patent rights. Right. Although you could argue they had the full right to yeah, do so. Sure, they did. It was CompuServe's mistake. Yes, exactly. And then, um, of course, what happened was the PNG format. Uh, Portable replaced, Network Graphics, I think. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it was deliberately not patent encumbered they used a different variation on compression that didn't stomp um on on the welch patent the lzw patent probably by that time 
um, Lempel and Ziv's had expired because I remember that that it, their patent was expiring a lot sooner, and even LZW did expire in the middle of June in 2003 of June. Um, LZW became went into the public domain because that's one of the nice things about patents is they're limited to 17 years, and after 17 years, it's you know there's been full documentation of the technology published in the patent, which then becomes completely free for anyone to use. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. I love the uh, algorithm stuff. And, I, and of course, this time it ties very closely into computer history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really, this, this one made a huge difference and everybody's, everybody knew about it. Steve, you're the best. If you want to <laughs> get more Steve, there's lots of it at GRC.com. His software, of course, Spinrite, the world's best file, or I'm sorry, hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. And he also uh, publishes a bunch of free software you can get at GRC.com and also services like Shields Up where you can test your router. You'll find 16 kilobit versions of our show there as well as complete text transcripts, searchable text transcripts at GRC.com. And next week's a Q&A segment, so you might want to get to GRC.com slash feedback if you've got any questions or comments or suggestions, and we incorporate those into the show uh, every other show. Steve, I uh, I will see you next week. We'll be back live recording uh, the show on Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Yep. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC. So you can watch it live.twit.tv if you'd like to see us do it live. But you can always listen. These shows are available on iTunes, on the Zoom uh, Marketplace, everywhere podcasts are available absolutely free. And we will have jumped from July 1st when we're recording this, Leo, all the way to the 22nd when you're when you're back from your trip. And we'll uh, we'll pick up from there. See you in three weeks. Thanks. Or man. next week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Depending on how you're enjoying this show. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Bye-bye. Security Now.